Last week we saw that God establishes his dynasty in Zion. We saw God's judgments against Philistia, Moab, Damascus, and Cush as contrasts between those nations and their rulers versus Jerusalem or Zion and God's ruler. And this week we're going to continue by looking at a prophecy of God's judgment against Egypt. What's unique about this judgment is the promised hope in the middle of the section, the, the first part of what Mike read for us. Not only is Egypt going to face uh, or experience some measure of restoration, but be a part of a threefold alliance of nations under God, along with Assyria and Israel. And as we develop this theme, I think we see in chapters 19 to 20 that God brings salvation through judgment to Gentiles. God brings salvation through judgment to Gentiles. Now, quite honestly, that is a larger theme throughout all of, all of the Bible. Um, there's, for example, uh, there's a, an approach to trying to understand major themes of the Bible called biblical theology. One of these biblical theologies, uh, basically the title is something like salvation uh, through judgment for God's glory is one of the major ideas that sort of unifies all of Scripture. Um, Whether that's true of all of Scripture, it's very clear, I think, that it's true in this passage. Specifically, and interestingly, not so much focused on Israel and Judah, but focused on a pagan nation with whom they had often allied themselves and that did not worship God at any any point in their history for the most part. We see, first of all, from chapter 19, that God brings judgment upon Gentiles. First of all, by inciting a spirit of division says here in chapter 19, verse 1, The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against his brother and against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy, so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead, and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. So God comes in the clouds. Uh, as though it was a swift horse riding in for judgment, destruction, like a general leading his army into battle. Um, I think that we see this imagery in the New Testament as well, right? Where, where Jesus is said to, to, he'll appear suddenly in the clouds and, and then we'll see him and, and all of these, it's going to set off all of these events in connection with the end times. So there's definitely, based on what we see later in scripture, an eschatological and end times feel to what we're seeing here. Uh, Again, as I pointed out last week, the question is, is this fulfilled in the future for Isaiah? Is it fulfilled in the future for us? Because when Isaiah writes this, it hasn't taken place yet. Uh, So again, we're in this interesting spot in history where some of what is written in the book of Isaiah has taken place, and some of it is yet future even for our experience. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the first thing here is that God incites this spirit of division. God appears... And it's interesting to see that it says the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Is that saying just that there's going to be an earthquake and the actual statues are going to fall over? I think it's getting to the idea that the demonic forces that stand behind those idols are dismayed at the appearing of the Lord. And the heart of the Egyptians, you know, if, if, if you are secure in the strength of your country, you say nobody can touch us, you're confident. There's nothing that scares you. But something comes that you can't explain, that you can't fight off, that you can't oppose... You, you have this fear and dread that fills your heart. What's going to happen? Who's going to deliver us, right? And the result of this is, is disunity. 
just like God did on a number of occasions throughout the history of the Old Testament, they're going to start fighting against each other. Hey, maybe this is through suspicion, or maybe this is through, hey, are are you with them? Are you with us? You know, this this suspicion, this concern, this this fear is going to drive them to fight against each other, and God's going to stir them up one against the other. Brother versus brother, city versus city, kingdom versus kingdom. The result of which, verse 3, their spirit is going to be demoralized. They're going to lose all hope. And their attempts, their schemes, their plans, they're going to fail. And the result of that is they're going to turn back to the pagan gods who can't help them because they themselves, these demons, are afraid of God. These idols are empty and worthless. But they're going to turn in their desperation back to their gods and those gods will fail them because verse 4 says they'll be delivered over into the hand of a cruel master. The sign that your God is not strong enough is when another nation comes up against you and beats you. Right? That's what the king of Assyria was saying to the Israelites, or the people of Judah, um, when we were looking at the discussion about Hezekiah in the Sunday school hour. What have the gods of all the places I've conquered done for them? You think your God's going to help you out? Along the same lines, negatively, the pagan idols of the Egyptians would not be able to deliver them because the true God was bringing judgment against them. So God incites a spirit of division, disunity, fear. Then God extends this waste of destruction in verses 5 through 10. The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed and the hired laborers will be disgrieved in soul. And so in this, God is bringing not only an army, his judgment against them, the spirit of disunity, but God is bringing destruction on them through, at the very least, something like a great and terrible drought and possibly even something so severe as to be miraculous, much as he dried up the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to pass. Here there's imagery of of drying up the sea such that all life in it dies. The fish die, the plants die, the fields die that are irrigated from these bodies of water. Everything dies off and the people starve because of famine. What's the result? The result is this widespread economic collapse that we see in verse 10. The hired laborers are grieved in soul. You can't fish if there's no fish. You can't weave if there's nothing to weave. You can't harvest crops if the crops are all dead and gone. And then result is starvation and economic collapse. This is another aspect of God's judgment on the people of Egypt, this extending this waste of destruction upon them. And then God stirs up a purpose of delusion for them. Verses 11 through 15. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well, then where are your wise men? Please let them tell you. And let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. 
Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush, may do. So God then sends this spirit of delusion on them. The rulers, you think, would be the ones who are wisely guiding the people, but it describes them as fools, and it describes them as acting foolishly and being deluded. And then their counselors, you know, if maybe the king doesn't know what to do, his wise men would surely have some idea. Here's our wise advice. How is it described? Their wise advice, they've become stupid. Where's their wisdom? They've led them astray. Now, what's fascinating about this is I don't know that this is a removal of intellectual capacity, right? It's not necessarily that they, they lose 400 IQ points and go from being brilliant, I know the scale doesn't go that high, being brilliant to being completely idiotic. That's not really the point. The point is that God is frustrating their attempts at wisdom because they are seeking it apart from him and man's wisdom is failing in the face of God's judgment and destruction against this nation. There's a parallel, I think, for us of what we see in Romans chapter 1 and also in 1 Corinthians. Let me just illustrate this for you quickly here. Uh, we'll start in Romans chapter 1. It says in Romans 1, verse 21, Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, Romans 1 develops the idea that this then leads to various kinds of sexual immorality and all sorts of other sins. But I think there's a pattern throughout history that what Romans 1 describes is true of every nation that in its own wisdom says God is not God. What is the end result? Various kinds of idolatry. Wisdom that seems like wisdom but ends up as foolishness. And so this is not necessarily, God doesn't necessarily have to even do anything miraculous to send this delusion upon them. All he has to do is let them go their own way. There's a parallel as well that occurs to me in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me mention that one, and then we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. It talks about in the end times that God is going to send um, a spirit of, of, of deception among those who do not believe but are going their own way. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11... Um, for this reason, God will send on them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, some people struggle with that. How can God, who's holy and righteous, send confusion and delusion and deception upon human people? Again, I think part of the answer comes back to what I was just saying a moment ago. God does not necessarily have to actively do anything to confirm people in their rejection of him, their rebellion, their self-deception. All he has to do is abandon them to their own devices and they'll do it to themselves. But it is, despite the fact that I think by and large they're doing it to themselves, perhaps with, with Satan and some of his demons standing behind and stirring them up, it's still God's judgment. God is aware of that. God's overseeing that. God's causing it to happen, at least at a distance, right? So what's the connection then with 1 Corinthians? Well, when it says, uh, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you, that sort of thing. 
I think we see a parallel where in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So I wonder if Paul was alluding to this passage when he wrote that in 1 Corinthians 1, using 1 Corinthians 1 as an illustration of the apparent foolishness of the cross in following Jesus, whereas here it's an illustration of the foolishness of opposing God and the judgment that comes on those who worship idols. So those three parallel passages, I just wanted to lay those out for you. The main point here that we see, though, is just this idea that God has caused them to be deceived, abandoned them to their own self-deception, the result of which is that their plans that seem wise to them fail, and they lead all their own people astray into further devastation. And the fact that we know that this is God's hand is because there's an active role here described in verse 14, which I said it's not necessary for God to do a whole lot for this to happen, but yet God's sovereign purpose is such that he's the one that's seen as the one causing it to take place. So we see that in verse 14. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. So what's the imagery here? You get some really... Uh, heavily intoxicating alcoholic beverage. You mix it up, you hand it to the person, they stagger around drunk, and then they go vomit everything that's in their stomach into the toilet the next day because they're just so drunk. So there's this image of, and when we see this again in Revelation too, there's this idea of the, the, the wine press of the wrath of God is mixed and it'll cause the nations to drink of it. So this is where I think the active component of God's sovereign purpose standing behind and facilitating all these things comes out, which is that although they are willingly deceiving themselves and fighting one against another, and it's, it's their pursuit of idols that has led them to this point, God's judgment is, is in view such that it's described as he, he gives them this mixed drink of destruction that leads them into horrible destruction that then just they lose all control over their own direction in the course of, of their nation. The end result of which is they have nowhere to turn. All their plans have failed. They've destroyed each other. They're full of drought and famine. Even the wise people who should theoretically be able to see a way out of it, they have nothing. They're like drunkards staggering around going from one thing to the next. So God brings judgment upon Gentiles. Why does God bring judgment upon the Gentiles? Well, we're going to see that in the next section here. Ultimately, it's to point them to salvation. But before we go there, uh, let's just look at chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. There's this fascinating sign of Isaiah being an illustration of the prophecy against Egypt and Ethiopia. And we see this here and there in the, in the prophets. We see one of the prophets cutting off his beard, and he burns a third of his beard, and he throws a third of it up in the air, and then he hits a third of it with a sword. I say, what's the big deal about that? That seems a weird thing to do. Well, the reason for that was to say a third of the people are going to be destroyed as though by fire, a third of them are going to be scattered as though something's floating in the wind, and a third of them are going to perish by the sword. So sometimes these images are explained, sometimes they're not. This one is explained. And God basically says to, do to, Isaiah, says to Isaiah to do what would be a shameful and uh, something that I think any average Israelite would be very hesitant to do. 
And he says, all right, you're going to go around with no shoes and no clothes for three years. So think about how that would have been viewed by the people. Think about how that would have been for he himself. Think about uh, how hard that would have been for him to do potentially. Um, you know, here's someone who's trying to be godly, who's trying to follow all the, the rules and rituals and so forth of the law. And, and he is basically becoming an object lesson for the people that he is prophesying to. And what's the point? Verse 3, he's gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token. You see what he's done voluntarily because God asked him to do? This is what's going to happen to the people of the nation involuntarily when they're conquered. They're going to be shamed by those who conquer them. They're going to wander around with nothing. It's going to be a sign of their complete and utter defeat. Now, verse 6 is interesting where it says, The inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? I think God is talking potentially to the Philistines, potentially to Tyre and Sidon, potentially to the nation of Israel and Judah as well. All of you who've gone and trusted in Egypt over and over and over again, when you see them being led away as captives, naked and barefoot, you're going to see the emptiness and the pointlessness of having trusted in them. When they're defeated and you've trusted in them, what do you think is going to happen to you? You're not going to prevail. Which is going to get us to the point, one of the big points in this chapter, which is, I think God's trying to destroy the empty trust that all these nations had in other nations like Egypt instead of trusting in God as their salvation. So let's talk about that now. When does this judgment take place? Well, we see a, a, a seemingly a, a close proximity kind of description in chapter 20, because if Isaiah is doing this as a sign... Just like we had in Isaiah 7, right? In Isaiah 7, there was the sign of the young woman being with child, which I argued for you was Isaiah's wife. He goes to the prophetess. She conceives and has a son. There's a son that is an immediate sign and token to the unbelieving King Ahaz. There is the virgin-born son of God, Jesus Christ, Isaiah 7:14, that is the great sign that God gives to the entirety of the world. And so in the same way, in this passage, we have, I think, an immediate sign, Isaiah wandering around naked and barefoot, of an, a, a near judgment of the people of Egypt. But I think we also have a future judgment and restoration in view in the second half of chapter 19. The reason that I say that is because I don't think we see anything that accurately fulfills the scope of what is described here. So when it says things like there's going to be five cities that swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts, there's going to be an altar set up for worship, that the people are going to worship with sacrifice and offering and make a vow to the Lord, and that Egypt and Assyria and Israel are going to be described as blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I don't think we've ever seen that in history up to this point. And so I think from, from our perspective, this is yet future. But what's the main point of it? Because as I said last week and on several occasions before, the main point is not, can we pin a date to these six verses and, and say, okay, that's when that happened. Great historical fact. Interesting. Let's move on. But the point is, why is God saying all of this? And the reason, I think, is that God is bringing salvation through judgment to Gentiles. We see this in chapter 19, verses 16 to 25. First of all, God destroys the power of Egypt. 
chapter 19, verses 16. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he's going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. Now, here's where I think there's a difference and a transition from the first part of the chapter. The first part of the chapter is that God is bringing this nation against them, which seems to be correlated to chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, that the nation defeating Egypt is going to be Assyria. But here in verses 16 and 17, it's the land of Judah that's a terror to the people of Egypt. How many times in history do we see it that Judah is a threat to the military might and power of Egypt? Not really in the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. Not really for the most part since then. I mean, I suppose we could argue for some of the more recent historical events in the last 50 to 70 years. But even then, I think it would be a stretch to say that what's described here has taken place so far. In this instance, God is going to destroy the power of Egypt and reverse the roles of Judah and of Egypt. Because it had always been this idea of Judah was threatened by Egypt and needed to ally herself with Egypt and needed to be on good terms with Egypt. And in the reverse is going to happen. Egypt is going to need to be on good terms with Judah. Egypt is going to fear Judah. Egypt is going to ally herself with Judah. So it's going to be a reversing of their roles. This idea of, of it being God's work, the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, it's as though the king is saying, go do this. And the whole nation is in fear. The whole nation of Egypt is now in fear because God has said, here's what's going to happen, and he's directed for it to take place. So this is God's work, God's doing, and I think it is a reversing of the roles of, of Egypt and Judah that is going to happen in a future time. When God reverses the positions of Egypt and Israel, there's a number of features that we need to look at here. Uh, chapter 19, verse 19, it says, In that day, and also chapter 19, verse 18, In that day, and verse 23, in that day, and verse 24, in that day. Now, why does he keep saying in that day? Because I think there's a correlation between the phrase in that day and an end times kind of emphasis that says not now, not tomorrow, but in that day, the day of the Lord, the day when God carries out all these things, all this is going to take place. Now, there may be a few handful of exceptions where in that day doesn't refer to the end times, but I think by and large it does. And I think it's important for us to recognize that in that day doesn't necessarily point to a specific physical, literal day, right? But I think it is pointing to a future time period that is collectively described as the day of the Lord and primarily described in terms of God's judgment on the earth. A side result of which is the deliverance of God's people, but the primary emphasis is God is punishing all the nations and bringing judgment on them. What are some of the things that we see here? Well, we see that in that day there are going to be five cities speaking the language of Canaan, swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Why? Because of this reversal of positions, because they see that they need to ally themselves with God. Uh, the phrase there where it says the city of destruction or the city of the sun is not explained, and a lot of speculation has gone forth as to what that, that is about. Some of the manuscripts say city of the sun, and then people have tried to tie it into some Egyptian city where they worship the sun god, Ra. I'm not saying that's wrong, but some of the other manuscripts that are equally old say city of destruction. Uh, the point is not necessarily, I think, for us to try to identify the city, but, but to see the main point, which is here's these cities 
that instead of allying themselves with Egypt, are allying themselves with Judah, speaking the language of Canaan, not the language of Egypt. The next thing that we see is this idea of there being an altar to the Lord in the middle of the land of Egypt and a pillar near its border. What's the significance of an altar? It's a place of, of sacrifice. It's a place of worship. What's the significance of a pillar? It's a place of remembrance. Think about Jacob's pillar that he sets up at Bethel. Think about the pillars that the Israelites set up after they crossed the Jordan River. What was the point of it? So they remember God's work. So they're changing from worshiping idols to worshiping the true God. They're changing from remembering all their false gods and what they think those false gods have done with them for them to remembering the true God. We see also this idea of them crying to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Now this, I think, would have been pretty startling for the people that Isaiah is speaking to. Yeah, God will deliver us because we're his chosen people. But you're saying that God's going to deliver the Egyptians and send them a savior and a champion and a deliverer? No way. But that's what it seems to be saying here, right? And who is this going to be? I mean, I think if we correlate it with the New Testament... It's ultimately going to be Jesus, the, the one that delivers all people who trust in him. What's the result of this in verse 21? The Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Now, there is, I think, we need to recognize not every time where it says know the Lord is it a saving knowledge of the Lord. Let me illustrate this. If someone says, hey, I believe in God, we'd say that's great. Okay? But you believe in God, the fact that you believe that there is a God is not enough for you to be on right terms with God, have a relationship with him, and spend all of eternity with him. Why? Because in James it says, the demons also believe that there is a God and tremble in fear. So if demons that are going to be consigned to the pit of destruction, the pit of fire, at the end of all things, know that there is a God and are still going to be condemned for all of eternity, it's not enough just to say, yeah, I believe in a God. A higher power, somebody out there doing stuff. There has to be a specific knowledge that leads to a relationship that leads to obedience and worship. So, the fact that I think that this is saving knowledge of God, is it because God's using the same sort of language here that he used in the book of Exodus, where he says, you're going to know that I'm the Lord to the people of Israel. In that context, the Egyptians' knowledge was, we fear God's power. We know that there is a God because he just beat all of our gods. But here, the emphasis is on know the Lord, which then leads to what? Worship with sacrifice and offering. Make a vow and fulfill it. So, true knowledge that leads to genuine salvation, that leads to proper worship, that leads to service in the form of vows that are fulfilled. That sounds like genuine belief in God. 1 Thessalonians 1. You turn from idols to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. There's a lot of parallel between those two verses. So I think that God is using this judgment to bring at least some of these Egyptian people to a genuine salvation. Look at verse 22. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. Now, there are instances where God judges nations, and the primary purpose seems to be destroying the nation because of its obscene wickedness. 
When the Israelites come into the land of Canaan, what are they supposed to do? They're not necessarily supposed to say, hey, come worship God with us. They're supposed to strike them with the sword and wipe them out. But here is a different sort of an emphasis. It parallels Hebrews 12 far more than it does the conquest of Canaan. The conquest of Canaan was wipe out these idolaters so they don't drag you into their idolatry. Here it is, God strikes them to restore them to a right relationship. Or in Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines those whom he loves to strengthen their faith and grow them in a relationship with him. Again, this is why I think this is pointing to genuine, real belief on the part of what God is doing among these Egyptians in that day. Here's another interesting feature of what takes place. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Have we ever seen a road between Assyria and Egypt for the purposes of worship? Don't think so. Here's the even more mind-blowing thing in verses 24 and 25. God grants Egypt a place alongside Israel to serve him. So Israel is going to be connected with her former enemies who are also untrustworthy allies at various points in her history. In this way, verse 24, the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. That's a different sort of relationship than we've seen throughout human history between these three nations. Together those three nations will be blessed by God, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed. Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. The people that were not his people are called here my people. We see that elsewhere in the Old Testament. We see it in 1 Peter. The people who were enemies of his people are now sharing in the Abrahamic vision of Genesis chapter 12... I will make of you a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Ultimately through Jesus Christ, but indirectly here through the ministry of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to peoples from these three nations, such that these who were enemies and faithless allies and never really friends are now experiencing God's blessing and pouring forth God's blessing to other nations upon the earth. Again, this has not happened to this point in human history. What then are we supposed to learn from these verses? Well, I think these two chapters point to the reality that no nation is ever safe from God's judgment. First of all, the the Israelites were repeatedly warned against trusting in Egypt, but they kept doing it over and over and over again, which is why I think chapter 20, verse 6 says, they're going to say, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? They're going to finally see the emptiness of trusting in the surrounding nations to deliver them from God's judgment because of their idolatry. No nation is immune from God's judgment. People talk sometimes about America being a Christian nation, and we can argue all day long of whether it started out that way. Certainly there were people with Christian values who founded our country. But whatever the reality was in the past, I think it's very clear that by and large, America is not a Christian nation today. We exalt immorality, We exalt a culture of death and child sacrifice. We exalt a culture of greed and oppression. 
So there's a sense in which America may be the greatest nation on earth in terms of freedom and some of the lingering blessings God has given to us, but we are not in any real sense a Christian nation. And yet we think that because in the past there were good Christian people in positions of leadership, that God is going to bless our country indefinitely. Powerful nations fall when they abandon God. And they can have the greatest military force in the history of the earth and still fall. Egypt was the military power in that region for centuries. The chariots of Egypt, the armies of Pharaoh, something to be feared. And they're so utterly defeated that they're stripped of their clothes and sent naked to wander into the desert. No nation is immune to God's judgment, and so we should not trust in ourselves. What do you and I trust in? What do you trust in when you should trust in God? Friendships? Family? Skills? Education? Money? You name it. There's any number of things we can put on that list of things that we trust in. The strength of our nation up to this point. All of those things can be lost in a moment. Look at Job's story. Look at the destruction God brings to Egypt here. Look at the fact that Jesus speaks a word in the book of Revelation and armies cease to exist. At least in physical bodies. They're just wiped out instantaneously. These are untrustworthy foundations for our hope. We need to believe in God ultimately. And finally, that's, I think, a consistent theme throughout the book of Jeremiah. I think the main point that this passage is driving home, though, is not even just this idea of stop trusting in other people, although that's an important point that's made over and over again in the Old Testament. I think that what this passage points us to is the hope A vision of Gentiles reckoned to be on par with God's own people, Israel. This is a fascinating and a remarkable thing. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea that Israel and Judah are God's chosen people. That God is with them and protecting them and helping them and all of these kinds of things. That nation over there? No. Yes. Yes. God's vision of salvation for the people of the earth has always included nations other than Israel. It's especially clear in the prophets. There were hints of it earlier on. Uh, You know, the passage I quoted in Genesis. In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's hints of it all throughout. It becomes more clear the further you go down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. What does this look like in the New Testament? Gentiles on par with God's people, Israel. Uh, I think of a passage like Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the deadness of all these people in sin, and then it gets in the second half of chapter 2 and says, You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So who and what is the ultimate fulfillment of the Savior, Champion, Deliverer in Isaiah chapter 19 for the people of Egypt? It's the same hope that Paul is speaking to the Ephesians about, the hope of the Gentiles, Jesus Christ, who takes those who are not his people, makes them his people, those who are far off and enemies, makes them part of his family and part of his nation. 
That's, I think, what it's pointing to. We see it in a number of other places, but just for sake of time, I'll just mention the one in Revelation that you're probably familiar with. Revelation chapter 7 says, After these things I looked and saw a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's vision for the people of the earth is that people from every nation would come to see him and believe in him and serve him. How is it possible for those who are God's enemies to become God's friends, his family? How is it possible for those who are persecuted or excluded from God's people to become part of God's people? Think about Saul and the remarkable transformation that God does to change him from being Saul the persecutor to being Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Think of the parallel to the experience of the Egyptians. We fought against the Israelites. We tried to conquer them. We killed them. We defeated them in battle. All of those sorts of things. And yet there's a reversal in which those that they formerly sought to destroy, they now come to serve and be allied with. The same thing is true in Paul's life in the New Testament. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch who had no family and then finds family in connection with the church in Acts chapter 8. Here's someone who's distant, disconnected, has no part, who now through the salvation Jesus offers has become part of God's family. We'll pick that up again later in the book of Isaiah. There's any number of other examples that we see throughout the scriptures of people who are God's enemies becoming part of his people. God is a God who punishes, but not without purpose. His punishment is designed for his glory. And although, as I mentioned a little while ago, sometimes it's designed to wipe out sinners from the earth, like in the nations of Canaan, it's often designed to bring those being punished to a first or deeper relationship with him. So when the day comes that Assyria, the bloodthirsty nation, and Egyptian, the proud nation of many gods, would join with Israel, the nation who often strayed from God, and the three would be instead a testimony of God's salvation, see how great the glory will be that God will receive in that day. So the question for us is, do you share in this vision that God alone is worthy of trust? Not anyone else we might look to, but God alone. And beyond that, that God is who is worthy of trust can transform the most hopeless sinner or the most proud self-sufficient fool. That God can restore the most faithless person who professes Christ to real devotion to God. What does that look like? Let's say you say I'm a Christian, but you're a liar. You lie all the time. You lie about big things. You lie about small things. You can't call yourself a Christian if you lie all the time and you love lying and you pursue lying and you see nothing wrong with it. It doesn't match up because God's a God of truth, not of deceit. Let's say you say, yeah, I love God, but I commit immorality all the time. I chase after, I chase after women. I cheat on my spouse. I look lustfully at people all the time. There's no matchup between saying I'm a Christian, but I commit adultery. I'm a Christian, but I regularly commit immorality. I'm a Christian, but I'm ruled by lust. There's no matchup. Now, can it, is it possible for Christians to sin in those ways? Yes. But if there's no conviction, you should have no confidence that you know God. Let's say you say I'm a Christian, 
but I, I commit murder. And you say, maybe I don't commit murder, but I hate people. And I despise them, and I look down on them, and I, I want to see evil done to them. That spirit of malice and hatred is not compatible with God who loves and has compassion towards sinners. Now again, is it we're okay with sin and we ignore it? No. Is it we like everyone? No. But we, if we genuinely know God, will show love toward people who are very different from us or all these other sorts of things. And if we don't, if there is no love for God and fellow people in us, we question whether we really have the love of God. First John makes that clear. From the perspective of people who say, well, none of those things are true of me. I'm not living in lust. I'm not living in lying. I'm not living in hatred and murder. I, 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 I don't live that way. Sometimes we, we find ourselves over here, and we look over here and we say, well, God can't save that person. God's going to save Egyptians who committed gross immorality and idolatry and cruel oppression and all of these sorts of things. So if God can save them, don't you think he can save that person? For that matter, if God saved you, don't you think he can save that person? We have a short-sighted view of the greatness of God's purpose in salvation. We're like, yeah, God will save the person who, you know, is a good Jewish person or a good Catholic person or a good whatever else. Um... Uh, because they're kind of on the same page, more or less, with us anyway. But a passage like this points us not to God saving people that are more or less upright people who are nice to the people around them and are good neighbors and all that kind of thing. This passage points to the fact that God takes people who are viewed by others as the scum of the earth and transforms them into pictures of his grace in the way that he delivers them from their sin. And then, in turn, uses them to point other people to him. So as much as this passage is about not having trust in untrustworthy sources, people of Judah, quit trusting Egypt. They're going to fail. It's even more, and I think most importantly, about the fact that God receives glory when through the destruction and devastation and horror that he brings these various pagans through, through all of those things, he brings them to a point of genuine belief and trust in him so that people can look and say, there is no way that that could have happened apart from what God has accomplished. And if you and I share in that vision, we will take the gospel to people expecting that that person, that it seems like there's no human hope of that he or she's going to trust in God, we expect that God's going to save some of those people. Even many of those people. We expect that God is going to receive glory as he transforms people's lives from being ruled by sin to being characterized by holiness. We would expect that God is going to build his church, not with people who are wise and, and mighty and rich and powerful, because there's not many that God calls that way, 1 Corinthians says. He calls those who are weak and despised, those who are not those who are nothing in the eyes of the world, and transforms them from being sinners to being testaments of his grace. And that's, I think, the vision that a passage like this points us to. So I hope, if nothing else, it's not so much a, a do passage as it is catch sight of the vision of what God's doing in the world and want to share in it. Let's pray. Lord, in self-righteousness, we look around us and we say, 
you can't do anything with that person. Or we try to hide the fact that we're the ones who rightfully deserve your judgment and we act like we are good to the people around us. In whichever situation we find ourselves, Lord, the ones who need your mercy because we are living in and loving sin, or the ones who need humility because we look at those living in and loving sin and think that you can't save them or restore them or help them, help us to repent of pride on both counts, to turn to you, to pray for others to turn to you. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a vision for the greatness of what you're doing in this world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.